Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom ye delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. And he will sit as a refiner in a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and like silver till they present right offerings to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the orphan, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. It does not say he is like a forest fire. And it does not say that he is like an incinerating fire. A forest fire destroys indiscriminately. And an incinerator consumes completely. But verse 6 in the text says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, you are not consumed. He is a refiner's fire, and that makes all the difference. A refiner's fire does not destroy indiscriminately. A refiner's fire does not consume completely. A refiner's fire refines. It melts down the gold or silver. It separates out the dross. It burns it up and it leaves gold intact. But it does say fire. Purity and holiness are dreadful things. Fire is serious business. We teach it to our children from the time they are very small. Don't play with fire. And that's a good lesson. And it's still a good lesson when you grow up. Don't play with Jesus Christ. You may be consumed. Fire is not to be played with. It is serious business. Don't be flippant with purity. Christianity is no joke. Therefore, this text is not merely a warning. 
it is a word of hope because he is not a forest fire. He is a refiner's fire. And I think I can capture perhaps the sense of hope in this text, perhaps best with this sentence. The furnace of affliction in the family of God is always for refinement, never for destruction. The furnace of affliction in the family of God is always for refinement, never for destruction. Now, I want to open this text by asking four questions. Number one, who is like a refiner's fire? Number two, why must he be a refiner's fire? Number three, how can you and I this morning come to experience the fire not as consuming but as refining? And number four, what is life like in the refiner's fire? Question number one. Who is like a refiner's fire? We get the answer to this question from verse number one. And I want you to try to identify three individuals as I read to you verse one of chapter three. Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The first individual we meet in this verse is I. Behold, I sinned. And the I is identified in the last phrase of the verse, says the Lord of hosts. So the I is God the Father, the Lord of hosts, Jehovah. Who's the second individual in this verse? The second individual is the messenger who prepares his way. Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me. Now, who is that? Well, in the New Testament, this very verse is quoted three times to identify John the Baptist, the, the one who prepared the way for Jesus. But you don't have to go to the New Testament to find out that this is a prophet who's going to prepare the way for somebody Turn to chapter 4, verse 5, and you see this person identified as one sent again, only this time more fully. Chapter 4, verse 5 in Malachi says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. So the first messenger that we meet in this verse and the second individual is one like Elijah, or for all they knew, one who would be Elijah resurrected from the dead? Luke 1.17 says John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So that's the second individual. A prophet, an Elijah figure, who would come and prepare the way of God someday. Now, who is individual number three? Number three is the Lord who comes to his temple. It says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Now, that is not the same messenger as the messenger in line one 
of the verse. Though you might be inclined to think it's the same, and there are several reasons why I don't think it's the same, and they're the same reasons why I think this person is none other than the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, whom we have come to know as Jesus Christ, our Lord. Three reasons or clues in the verse why I think this second messenger is the Lord of glory. Clue number one is the word Lord. He is called the Lord. Now, that word is not Jehovah, but it is Adonai. It is the great designation made often to God, but not applied to the likes of Elijah or John the Baptist. So the name Lord itself is a high and dignified title. Second, this person comes to his temple. He owns the temple. Now, who owns the temple of God beside God? That's clue number two, that this person is somebody very different from Elijah. You can't say of Elijah, this is his temple. And the third reason I think this person is virtually God is that he is interchangeable with the me who is Jehovah in line one. Let's just read it and you'll catch this as you get the flow of the verse. It says, behold, I send my messenger, that is John the Baptist or Elijah, to prepare the way before me. And then he switches and instead of going on and saying what you would have expected him to say, and I will suddenly come to my temple. He's preparing the way before me, so here I come, right? Wrong. He switches without any hesitation and says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. As though the me whose way is being prepared is interchangeable with the Lord. The messenger of the covenant. Now, you know, you hear many times people say the Trinity is not taught in the Old Testament. It's a doctrine that you have to learn from the New Testament. Well, that's pretty much true, but it's not completely true. There is no explicit doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament. But when you read verses like this, and they are really quite uh, widespread in the Old Testament, pointers and hints that say more is in the offing here in the personhood of God then we begin to realize. So my conclusion is that the messenger of the covenant, the Lord, the owner of the temple, is none other than the Son of God, God himself, whom we have come to know at Christmas as Jesus Christ. Now, verse 2 goes on to say, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears, for he is like a refiner's fire. So there's the answer to my question. Who is the refiner's fire? Or who is like the refiner's fire? My answer is, it is the messenger of the covenant, the Lord, the owner of the temple, whom we have now come to know in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He has come once as a lowly servant. He will come again in glory and there will be fire both times. Behold, I come to spread fire on the earth, he said the first time. And when he comes again, there will be fire. Second question. Why must he be like 
a refiner's fire? The answer is in the word refiners. We need refining. We are corrupt. We were created in the image of God. You could call that gold. That is, we have the potential to know God, love God, trust God, obey God, and reflect in all of that glory back to God. That's what I think it means to be in the image of God. And that's gold to have that kind of potential. And we are shot through with the dross of corruption and rebellion and sin. We were born in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. You can prove to yourself in a lot of different ways the degree of your remaining sinfulness, and it is great and should keep us broken and humble before the cross. The little experiment that I did with myself yesterday, just so that I wouldn't just mouth words, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, sure, we all know that, on with business. That's a dreadful attitude to have about your sin. So I asked myself, John, compare these two things. How does your heart naturally respond when you are offered an opportunity to have a thing or do a thing that highlights your strengths and your virtues? Compared with how your heart responds with the opportunity to go to your closet and be alone where nobody knows and commune with God. How does the readiness for the one compare with the resistance to the other? And where is the root of that? So we are impure by nature and by practice. But God will have no alloys in heaven. It says, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so nobody's going to heaven. If something doesn't happen, we're all canceled out because we are not pure. But God will have a heaven full. I was reading this week in my devotions in uh, Luke 14, that great parable about the banquet hall and Jesus Sends and invites the guests and they say, oh, sorry, I can't come. I married a wife and I've got to go see her. Or, sorry, I can't come. I've got some cows to look at or I've got some fields I've got to check out. And they won't come. Well, what does Jesus do? He says, shut the hall. We'll have no banquet. He says, beat the bushes. Go to the highways. We will fill this hall. And he gets half the work done and his, his uh, emissaries come back and they say, oh, we've done it. And, and there's still room in the hall. He says, go back, go back. This room is going to be full, which simply means heaven is going to be full someday of redeemed people. And yet none of us qualify. Therefore, Jesus must be a refiner's fire. You might ask, well, wait a minute, there is another possibility. Um, maybe he'll just give up on us and start over again. Just Throw all this dross-filled metal out and go mine some new gold. And you could have a heaven full. How do you know God is going to be for you a refiner's fire? Verse 6 gives the answer. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, 
You, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Now that verse doesn't make sense by itself because changelessness guarantees me nothing. If it's changeless anger or changeless hostility or changeless wrath or it's got to be something more. What should you fill in? You just got to fill in the blank in this verse. Where do you get the answer to fill in the blank? Changeless what? And I get the answer from verse one. Because verse one identifies the Lord, the owner of the temple, as the messenger of the covenant. And that's a good news word all through the Bible. The covenant. He's the messenger of a promise, an agreement. Rock solid loyalty on God's part lies behind this covenant. And he doesn't change in his covenant mercy and covenant grace. Now, what is that? What is the covenant with the sons of Jacob referred to here in verse six? Well, to get the answer to that, just go back with me a few weeks. Do you remember how this book began? It was the foundation of everything that's been said so far in verse two of chapter one. Here's the way the book began. God says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how hast thou loved us? God says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob. Now, what does that mean? That means that the whole process of redemption began with a sovereign, free choice of a people, Jacob. And his children. And here's the way to see the meaning of verse 6 of chapter 3. Put it right beside verse 2 of chapter 1. Verse 2 of chapter 1 says, I have loved you. You say, how have you loved us? And I say, are not you Esau's brother? Yet I love you. I set my favor on you. I chose you. And I'll put that beside verse six. I, the Lord, do not change. O sons of Jacob. Therefore, you are not consumed. The sons of Jacob will never be consumed because God's covenant faithfulness will never change. Question number three. How can we experience his fire as refining and not consuming? That is, how do you get to be a part of the sons of Jacob? Notice verse five. There is consuming fire coming. It says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the orphan, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now, that is not refining fire. That is forest fire. Incinerating fire. And the reason you know it is. The confirmation of that is to just look across the page in my Bible. I don't know where it is in yours. Chapter four, verse one. Can you find that? 
Here's another prophecy of that same event of judgment. For behold, the day comes burning like an oven when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. Now contrast that with gold. No refining going on here. They will be stubble. The day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So we have a choice in front of us this morning. We can meet the fire of God as refining fire or forest fire. How can you be sure that you meet fire as refinement and not judgment? First, let me tell you what the answer cannot be to that question. The answer to that question cannot be, get rid of your sin. You see why that can't be the answer? That's what refinement is for. That's what Jesus is for. That's what fire is for. In the refining furnace. So you can't answer the question. How do I qualify. To get refined. By saying get rid of your sin. That's what refining is for. So here's the question. I'm a sinner. I want fire to meet me as refining. And not consuming. How can I qualify as a sinner. To meet fire as refinement and not judgment. And the answer of the whole Bible is trust in the purifying mercy of God. Now you might ask me, where's that in Malachi? I've heard that, I hear that in the New Testament. Is that in Malachi? The recurrent refrain in Malachi is not the word trust. It's the word fear God. It's here at the end of verse 5. You saw it as I read it, I think. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And it, it occurs again and again. But now I want to argue that that means trust God. Because if you just start thinking about it. And you think about it in its various contexts in the Old Testament and New Testament. What does it mean to fear God in the sense of reverencing God? I think it means this. Fear dishonoring God by giving him a vote of no confidence. Fear dishonoring God by blackballing him with distrust. You see, if you just think it through, fear God means be terrified at the prospect of not trusting his mercy. I told the story one time about six years ago about that um, German shepherd that Dick Teagan used to have and how we went out there and he's big. And you open that door and he kind of met you there and you didn't know whether he was safe or not. And we sent uh, Benjamin, who was just little at that time, out to the car to get something. And uh, this dog kind of loping along behind Benjamin. is about the same size. And uh, 
Benjamin started to run. And Dick said, don't run, don't run, Benjamin. He'll get upset with you. Just walk. And I saw that, and it has been in my mind ever since one of the greatest illustrations of the fear of God. This is the friendliest dog you ever saw, but not if you run away from him. The safest thing you can do with this dog is hug him. You run right in there. If you turn and run the other way, you're guilty and he's angry. Something's wrong here. That's what Dick said. Fear God means fear running from God. Fear God means hug God. Fear God means trust His purifying mercy. He knows the time for joy and truly will send it when He sees it meet. When He has tried and purged thee duly and found thee free from all deceit, He comes to thee all unaware and makes thee own His loving care. Trust the skill of your refiner. He is very expert in His work. So the way to experience the fire of Christ as refining and not consuming is to trust the promise that he will bring you through. To trust his skill as a refiner and to go ahead and follow him in faith right into the furnace of obedience. Final question. What is life like in the refiner's fire? What's life like in the refiner's fire? Do you live in the refiner's fire? If you're a Christian, you do. There are two things I want to say. They're very brief. Number one, life in the refiner's fire is a life of confidence in the skill, power, mercy of God as our refiner. It's confidence in that promise I gave you way back at the beginning. Let me say it again. It may be the most important thing I say. The furnace of affliction in the family of God, parenthesis, sons of Jacob, close parenthesis, is Always for refinement and never for destruction. That's the first thing to say about life in the refiner's fire. It is a life of trust and confidence in the fire. The second thing to say is that on the path with God, no pain, no gain. It is fire. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And it is no more possible to become pure without pain than to be burned without pain. Now, what is the fire in the refiner's fire? What's the fire in your life? It is two things. Number one, affliction. Of all sorts. I don't think there's any need to narrow it down to persecution or sickness or loss of job or deformity or anything. It's just affliction. Anything that threatens faith through hardship. And the second thing it is, is deliberate self-denial. Now, let me illustrate those two things from, from the Bible. Fire of affliction, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, you may 
if necessary, have to endure various trials so that the genuineness of your faith, which like gold, though perishable, is tested by fire, might redound unto praise and glory and honor. You see what that says? Faith is more precious than gold in the eyes of God. And therefore, he aims to get the dross out of it with fire of affliction. Hebrews 12 says the same thing without using the word fire. And the reason this text is important is because it shows how everybody has to experience this. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, for the Lord disciplines him whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, you are illegitimate children. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's one form of fire, the fire of trial or affliction. You might think your life has been easy to this point. Perhaps it hasn't. It won't be forever. There will be affliction of one form or another in Christ in the fire. And the second form is deliberate self-denial. Now, that's a gift of the Holy Spirit, and that's why I call it the refiner's fire. You might say, well, wait a minute, if I deny myself, how can that be God's fire? The answer is, Galatians 5.22 says that self-control is a gift of the Holy Spirit or fruit of the Holy Spirit. So if you have the grace to attack any of your sins, that is fire from on high. Now, why do I call it fire? You go to Matthew 5. And you read this, Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Now that's fire talk. That's napalm. You see what I mean? I think we sometimes get the idea that we're Christians and we're safe. It's all rosy. We'll get through by the skin of our teeth. And we don't have any idea what Jesus talks about when it comes to sanctification. When it comes to being holy and pure, this dreadful calling to live in fire. It means when there is sin in your life, you don't get up and say, oh, I'm a sinner. Jesus says, off to work. What do you do? You amputate. You spray chemical warfare. You use napalm. You fight with fire. Against your sin. You don't live with sin. Peaceably. So those are the two forms. That fire takes. In the furnace of the refiner's fire. Affliction. And deliberate. Self-denial. Paul says I pommel. My body. To bring it under control. Lest I myself be. Cast into the forest. Fire. What is life in the refiner's fire? It is just that. Refining and faith in a loving, fatherly, skilled refiner. And it is fire. And I urge you this morning to admit your need of refinement. And to cast yourself this morning on the mercy of a covenant-keeping God. And to trust what God can make out of your life in 
and through the refiner's fire. There's a great song I want to sing with you as we close. Anybody know what it is? It's the last two verses of how firm a foundation. You'll see why. Verses 3 and 4, number 32. How firm a foundation shall we stand as we sing? You together, Almighty God and Heavenly Father, that your design is our dross to consume and our goal to refine. We bless you and praise your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that you have come to us to refine and save in this Advent season. And I pray that every person in this room would know you as a refiner and not a consumer. In your great and holy name and all the people said, Amen.